Hello, and welcome to Thrash Life, Episode 3. Who are we talking with today, Ed? Today's guest will be John DeCampos, well-known for Baltimore Rock Opera Society, Hayes Mage, Cowabunga Pizza Time, as well as lots of board gaming. The list goes on, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, We had a pretty good discussion about a lot of things, including his new games that are in development and soon to come out, as well as uh, the nature of his artistry and how it all ties into being a musician after so many years. And I think it's a pretty good discussion. But before we get into that, I'd just like to ask, it's been a week. How you been, man? Pretty good. Pretty good, actually. Uh, you know, pretty light week because of the whole Thanksgiving thing. Oh, yeah, How was your yeah. Thanksgiving? Uh, my Thanksgiving was mostly spent uh, catching up on sleep. Yep, uh, same here. Did not actually cook any uh thanksgiving traditional food Uh, okay um in fact i kind of forget what we had something normal i think we just ate some curry nice um what about you you got a big turkey cooked a big ass fucking turkey and now i have like 20 pounds of turkey in my fridge that is the best part (laughs) about making the turkey our oven's a little um random so it's kind of a uh, gamble to try to cook anything in there, let alone something like a turkey that could go yeah. pretty wrong. So Yeah, I guess by the time you guys are listening to this, it'll be a little bit closer to Christmas. But I did, uh, we put up the Christmas tree last night, threw on uh, the Tijuana Christmas vinyl. Oh, nice. Yeah. You got a big tree, real tree? A uh, big-ass fake tree. Oh, uh, okay. We got the Charlie Brown Christmas fake tree, the tiny one. Nice. Um, has not been set up yet, but probably will be soon. Yeah. Uh, a couple things happened this week that I figured bring up. Um, this pretty uh, interesting article that uh, I think you sent me, Adele Record Store Day and Why You'll Take CDs and Like It from Decibel. Um, at the end of the article, it just goes on to say, what's the end point here? Vinyl is fucked. Cassettes are fucked. And CDs, while on the rise, are riding an artificial wave and are probably fucked as well. I fully expect to see the death of physical media in my lifetime, but I didn't expect it to happen like this. And if all the physical product is in limbo, then what's the point of record labels? Bands can digitally release their records themselves, which allows for greater auto, greater artist autonomy. Uh, article's pretty much just saying uh, all the all the materials for every way to put out music is held up uh, in shipping containers all over the place. Everything's going through the roof. And it's uh, probably twice as expensive to release anything for your fans uh, this year, last mm. year. And just the... Um... The mainstream interest being reignited in new pressings of vinyl. You can buy it at like Target now. Yeah, I guess they were like trying to um, blame uh, Adele for this album that is constantly in print for vinyl to meet demand, but also Taylor Swift for releasing a four LP album, which is, you know, she's printing four (laughs) times as much vinyl as anybody else. And it's kind of like, all of the mainstream musicians uh, got in on the vinyl game and are fucking it up for everybody. Yeah. Which is, um, I mean, if you look at, I saw a vinyl sales chart recently, like uh, comparing 
vinyl sales to like the 70s. Yeah. And we're still only at like 20% of the vinyls that were sold in the 70s. We're still under, you know, a lot of these plants like yeah. closed down. That's oh, yeah. the problem. Yeah. Yeah, there's one uh, up in York that I passed by. It's just a big abandoned building. But I think it was a vinyl pressing like factory or whatever at some point. Yeah. Uh, I think it was uh, also talking about Record Store Day, which is a, a neat little thing to get you into stores uh, once a year, offer exclusives, and how that turned into a, a reseller gambit where these people, or even the stores, just uh, don't even ah, right. bring yeah. out the records. They just resell them online for a much higher price. Um, I mean... What are you going to do? What are you, you going to do, man? <laughs> like, record stores are probably scraping by on, like, barely any profits for, you know, like 10 yeah. or 20 years. Then you drop this product on them where the guy's and like, And they're Damn. supposed to sell it to some guy who's going to turn around and sell it and make the money anyways. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. That's where it's going to end up. I don't begrudge them for it. It's... It, it's it, these things happen in uh in comic books and all the and like the uh action figures and all that shit too like yeah. all these limited edition things that uh just get scooped up immediately and resold or even just ps5s yeah <laughs> <laughs> but yeah an interesting like side note off of this is like like while they're while they are blaming adele which i don't necessarily uh agree is like the main root of the problem adele does apparently have a lot of power because in a story from npr uh adele asked spotify to remove the default shuffle button for albums and they went ahead and did it they obliged um it used to be uh that you go try to listen to an album like track one through track 10 in order and it would just uh, fucking shuffle yeah. you every time which made listening to albums on Spotify obnoxious. like yeah really obnoxious. Yeah. Um, I don't pay for the premium. It does that to you even if you have premium. I I paid for premium like years ago. Okay. And um, Ellie pays for premium right now, so I could hmm. ask, but <laughs> yeah. but I think it's uh, uh, it's so weird. Um, apparently. Adele went ahead and said, we don't create albums with so much care and thought into our track listing for no reason. Our art tells a story and our story should be listened to as we intended. And then Spotify uh, like responded in a tweet and said, anything for you. And then they just changed it. And it's like, if you could have just changed it this whole time, like why yeah. didn't you? But Yeah, what is the upside for Spotify to just wreck everyone's listening? Yeah, you. I mean, it's kind of weird. I grew up, like listening to uh like dark side of the moon for instance and like if you try to yeah. listen to that album out of order it's not quite the same like a lot of these albums do try to tell a story so if you're trying yeah. to you know go in a different track listing you're kind of messing the whole thing up yeah well good for her and good for them yeah yeah good for adele thanks adele yeah getting it done not my, not getting my records done, but you know. <laughs> yeah, at least I can listen to them digitally in the correct order. Now. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Um, Kid Rock released a <laughs> single <laughs> recently. Um, this will, this might be old news by the time this podcast comes out, but uh, he he came out with a music video. Uh, it's probably everywhere. Um, it's and also simultaneously nowhere. Yeah, it fucking sucks. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, I thought it was pretty funny. Rolling Stone uh, magazine carried this headline that says, Kid Rock rants about snowflakes and fake news on terrible new song. Like They literally <laughs> called it terrible in the headline. Uh, it says, despite wearing a shirt that reads social media sucks throughout the video, Kid Rock spews a series of verses that read like an angry uncle's tweets about the libs. Complaining about cancel culture, fake news, and how every kid got a motherfucking trophy. Which, I always thought that was kind of funny, like, the trophy thing. Because it's like, the kids didn't give themselves trophies. It's like your fucking generation that gave the kids the trophies. It's not my fault that you gave me a trophy. He's (laughs) going to be like, no, I didn't earn it. Yeah. Uh, Apparently a quote from the song, uh, apologize for the language in advance, but (laughs) this is Kid Rock, (laughs) not me. Yeah, this is Kid Rock's words. Uh, a nation of pussies is our next generation, and these minions and their agendas, every opinion has a millennial offended. But this Amendment 1, it rings true, and if you dissent, bitch, then see number 2. Um, okay. Everything's got to be about millennials. Like They don't realize like younger people are out there, young, younger people than millennials. And they're also, like, Kid Rock's whole career was like launched on the back of millennials. Yeah, yeah. That's his fan base, I want to say. And this song, too. There's going to be a corner of the millennial population that eats it up. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) It says, however, Kid Rock saves the most offensive verse in the terrible song for last when he compares himself to the likes of Bruce Springsteen. Quote, I'm like Reverend Run or David Lee Roth. Like Springsteen, bitch, I'm the motherfucking boss, Mm. Kid Rock claims. James Dean, shit. I'm more like Brad Pitt. A little less pretty, but I sling more dick. Um, okay. <laughs> I, I like how he concedes that he's less pretty than Brad Pitt. Like, he, even he yeah. knows. He's well, like, I, I can't fuck with yeah. that. Uh, I mean, if you're like David Lee Roth, then do some jump kicks, dog. Let's see it. I think Bruce Springsteen's incredibly overrated, too, so I'll give him that one. He can go ahead and be like Springsteen. Mm, No, I I can't agree with that one. I'm I'm down with the boss in this household. Mm, All right. (laughs) It's a a real pity that uh, Manfred Mann stole the number one single spot from Bruce Springsteen. You know, Blinded by the Light, that's a Bruce Uh Springsteen song. Never never charted as high as Manfred Mann's version. Huh. Anyway. Rev it up. (laughs) Talking about Kid Rock, uh, Weird Al Yankovic decided to chime in on Twitter and was like, to everybody that's congratulating me on my new Kid Rock parody video, let me clarify, that's not me, that's actually Kid Rock. (laughs) Which uh, led to an interesting discussion of if Kid Rock should, in this new era of weirdness, start doing like reverse, like anti-parodies, like try to become the normal Kid Rock instead Mm. of do like, because how can you parody this? He yeah, he himself. Is, well, yeah. I think he's going to start releasing rants from his pickup truck. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's definitely the next one. As soon as he gets on TikTok, man. He probably is already on TikTok, right? He's got some pretty good media I bet people. he's got to be. I don't know. At least he's probably got this song on TikTok somehow. <laughs> yeah. I saw a couple, a couple new products uh, that I want to mention real quick before we get into our interview. Uh one of them more ridiculous than the other. Let's start with the ridiculous one, which is Metallica Clue, mm. the board game Clue, also the movie Clue, much yeah. better than the board game. Yeah, the board game is trash no matter what 
you slap on it with yeah. pictures you put there. It's just not a good game. So they've reskinned Met- uh, uh, Clue to be Metallica Clue. Uh, the gear has gone missing, and the band must find it to get the recording session back on track. Instead of finding a killer, you're finding mm-hmm. a, a gear thief, which mm-hmm. I guess the whole if the whole band gets to like you know beat up on them in like the head cannon after after he steals the yeah, gear i just feel like metallica would just buy new gear yeah i don't think that metallica uh also who are we kidding metallica's not recording what are they doing yeah like this fictional reality of, of metallica recording and you know may, maybe it's better if they stole the lars's snare drum from fucking <laughs> uh saint anger speaking, or some shit speaking of lars did you see um there's also another ridiculous uh, product. There's a uh, a guy, I think his name was Midnight Prince, has made a Lars toilet, and you sit on his lap and poop. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, who doesn't want to shit on Lars, I guess? Yeah. Well, th- thanks a lot, Midnight Prince, yeah. for bringing this art into reality. Yeah. I think the last thing I have to bring up is uh, uh, really excited to announce... Deftones have launched the Deftones Cannabis Collection in a in a tweet on our actually Instagram right. post. He said, "Throughout our career, it has been an ongoing mission to provide our fans with quality products. Whether it's music, beer, or tequila, we put in the time, care, and effort to make sure we're delivering merchandise to the market that have been thoroughly scrutinized by all of us." And the obvious next step in this progression is cannabis okay and i believe like so they have like a couple strains and like uh and stuff and they're all named after uh albums and and songs and they have like deftones packaging it's only available in california but like Uh, yeah a lot of these um like weed brands from like podcasts or musicians or whatever only available in california yeah, it looks uh, interesting. If you're a Deftones collector, I guess you'll just have to move out west because you're not allowed to carry that across state lines. So, yeah. And that's all I got. How about you? Oh, uh, not a whole lot going on. Just a little local news. Uh, Philadelphia Thrashers Trader have just released a new album. So, oh, nice. Worth checking out. Some good shreddy guitar stuff. Right on. Check out Trader and uh, Richmond-based uh, crash band Enforced has uh, been added. They're joining up with uh, Municipal Waste. Yeah, I think I saw and, some of those uh, Gate Creeper. There's like one or two more bands, but I can't remember who they are off the top of my head right now. But looks like a cool tour, and it's good for one big local band to be helping out another yeah. rising local band. I love that enforced logo. Yeah, me too. I don't love how close their name is to Enforcer. Yeah. It's another sweet band, but you know, yeah. we'll take it as long as we get some music. Yeah. Well, it's been good talking to you. Let's get straight into this interview. John DeCampos. could you introduce yourself and uh, tell us your pronouns? Uh, my pronouns are he, him. My name is John DeCampos. Uh, I do lots of stuff. I'm a musician here in Baltimore. I'm uh, the 
owner of Terrible Games, is a board game, a, a small indie board game publishing company. We haven't technically published anything yet. We we've made some games, but we haven't delivered them to backers yet. But I'm working on it. I'm I'm staying vigilant. Um, I'm a founding member of the Baltimore Rock Opera Society, former artistic council member. Uh, I'm in Calvunga Pizza Time, Haze Mage, and a new project I'm working on called Polyhedral. That is a long list. Some things. Yeah. <laughs> um, how would you describe the music that you play? Um, man, I uh, excessive. Everything I do artistically is kind of excessive. It's people refer to my art, my visual art. I'm an illustrator, also. I didn't mention that. I I do freelance illustration as my like my main gig. Um. Busy is what some people say, which I I fucking hate that note. Uh, I hate when people say that, but it, I guess it's apt, even though it, it's not helpful when people say that. Uh, musically, like I'm, uh, uh, man, like metalcore is in there. Uh, like early '80s metal, like English metal, like Judas Priest or Iron Maiden. Um, I love harmonized guitars. I love like chunky, like scooped distortion. Um, but you know, the, the bands that I'm in, uh, Hayes Mage is a stoner metal band. Uh, Cowbunga Pizza Time is a party punk metal thing. And Polyhedral is like techie deathcore. Wow. Shit. We're, we're, that band is very new. We have not played any gigs or recorded anything, but it's, it's happening. It's, it's pretty cool. It's, I'm having a lot of fun with it. Right on. And what kind of places do you usually play? Just Baltimore. Just uh, Baltimore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like you know, I, I played, I played Sidebar, the Metro Gallery, uh, you know, uh, the Crown, um, Autobar. Uh, I played Ramset. I played, uh, I played in DC at the Black Cat. I played fucking uh, the Fillmore. Uh, played at Magfest to like four thousand people. Um, I used to be in a bunch of video game cover bands. And we, we, we saw some, some pretty good success, but I, I, I recently kind of fallen out of that. Um, you know, yeah, I, I played Philly and, you know, up and down the East Coast. and Like mid-level clubs and yeah, uh, yeah. occasional bigger dates. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I opened for Andrew WK once. Okay. And that was cool. I opened for a Canadian band called Twerp at the Fillmore, and that was cool. All right. So I've gotten a couple, like, big rooms, uh, like, two or three times in my life. And then everything else is sort of like mid-level kind of stuff. All right. Um, let's take it to the beginning. Uh, your earliest musical influences. Before you started playing music, as you were a child becoming cognizant of the world around you and music suddenly became a thing that was real and slapped you in the face, uh, what, what, what was that? What happened to turn you on to music? Um, I mean... Even though I don't really like my dad or get along with him, uh, he kind of like turned me on to appreciating music on a more serious level. And I remember listening to like Joe Satriani and like Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix and shit with him. It hadn't really clicked then. And then you remember that shit that they used to have back in the day when we were kids, where it was like you give the CD company a penny and then oh you yeah get, yeah you get eight you can get eight CDs and then you pay them later or some shit. Yeah, Random House or yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah, whatever it was. So uh, I don't remember all the ones that I got, but I remember I got Green Day Dookie, Pearl Jam, 
something from Nirvana, which I became like obsessed with Nirvana for most of my high school age time. Mm-hmm. Um, Weezer, I fucking love Weezer so much. Even though I'm like a, I'm like a like dyed in the wool metalhead. Like I fuck with Weezer so hard, and like a lot of alternative rock shit from when we were coming up, like Cake and um, Beck. Oh yeah, that cake and Beck were on the you know one yeah, they were on list. there. Yeah, they were on there. I think I got a copy of Odelay on that on that CD deal. Um, but uh, yeah, I would say like my really like I I became like serious about listening to music at least when I found Nirvana, which I didn't even start listening to them until like years after Kurt had died. But I was seriously like I, I it it was like an emotional anchor for me to listen to um, like Unplugged. I, I would listen to that every night to go to sleep. I would listen to Muddy Banks of the Wishka if I was feeling fucking anxious. Uh, I loved In Utero. Um, I listened to all their stuff, man. I just... Um, and side note, actually, I met both surviving members of Nirvana at different points in my life, which was kind of cool. Oh, rad. <laughs> yeah. Um, coming forward a little bit, what was it like the first time you... Uh, took it to the next level and were able to jam with some musicians. That is, I think, a somewhat interesting story. So I had kind of toyed with writing music, and um, I got busted for weed when I was, like, 22. And uh, my stepdad was like, you can't live here anymore. Because he had some felony charges that he was, like, that were way back in the day. Mm -hmm. But he just couldn't be involved with anything criminal otherwise it would jeopardize like his probation which was just lifelong oh okay yeah (laughs) so i had to fucking go and um i went to california to live with my dad to sort of like chill for a second and during that time i had gotten a whole i've been playing acoustic guitar for a while but i started writing a lot and when i came back to maryland after i was there i was in la for like three months i couldn't find work it fucking sucked and um i came back and I moved in with this guy named Tony Dant, who was like an old head who had recorded a bunch of stuff and done a couple notable things in the music scene around here. And he had a basement studio, and I recorded like a four-song album. None of this material is available. I don't know where any of these recordings are. You wrote this all yourself? I wrote, Yeah, I wrote four songs. I recorded the drums. I did bass. I played everything on it. I sang on it. Um, the name of the, the name of the project was Disciples of Warren, which was the manager at the subway I worked at in high school. This guy named Warren. <laughs> Uh, and, um, after that, so like, I, I, I've never really been like great at like jamming with people, but, um, I was living in this shitty apartment in downtown Annapolis and me and some friends from high school, Ian Venator and Chris Baines drove to this show at a church in Philly to go see this band called the advantage, um, which is a video game. They're the pre, they're the preeminent video game cover band. Like, Okay. Now, if you look around on the internet, on TikTok or whatever the fuck, like you'll see lots of people covering classic video game music. Yeah. Right. Eight bit era, sixteen bit era music. Like people fuck with Chrono Trigger and and Metroid and everything else. Right. Uh, but back then, there were like three bands that did it. Uh, maybe even just the two. There was the Mini Bosses and the Advantage, and the Advantage was like the first group of dudes. And the the guys who were in the Advantage, uh, if you've ever listened to Fu Manchu or the Fucking Champs. Yeah. Yeah. They were, like, in with that group in Cali. Oh, okay. And they were doing video game covers. So we saw them. There were some opening acts that were amazing, no doubt. Uh, And if anybody who lives in Philly knows, like, this is a church that has, like, a basement area. And it's, like, really – I forget the name of the venue, but it's, it's like, a 
a well-tread known venue in Philly that has like fucking amazing shows. Like I saw Man Man there. Um, I saw, uh, anyway, so we left the show and we were in the car and we were just like all just like electrified by just hearing video game music performed in our, through the lens of like rock and roll. And, uh, like collectively we were just like, man, we could do that probably better. Like we could be heavier. We could be like louder <laughs> and more aggressive. So we started this band called entertainment system that I was in for like. 12 years. Oh, wow. Um, which, if anybody listen to this, like, if you search Entertainment System, like, you will find us on the shit, uh, on all of the things. Like, so we were one of the earlier video game cover bands that did stuff. And um, Mega Man 2, Wily's Castle, baby. That was it. <laughs> that was the first time that me and the boys got together. We, we, we learned a couple of cover songs, and that project turned into a thing that, like, lasted for most of my lifespan as a musician. And it informed a lot of my sensibilities too. Uh, I think, in, you know, to a beneficial, um, to a beneficial sort of flavor because it's all instrumental. It's storytelling. It's musical storytelling. Mm -hmm. So when I started fucking around with writing music for rock operas with the Bros, with the Baltimore Rock Opera Society, it felt really natural to compose music that didn't need like the words would come later. Right? We didn't right, know right. what the script was going to be. But uh, writing sort of uh, cinematic, mm -hmm. like very hooky, very like easy to listen to, to loop kind of stuff. Uh, the the video game shit, like, I think like helped me a lot. It also like beefed up my chops as a guitarist a ton because all those harmonized lead lines, all of the weird stuff that they're doing, like video game composers, especially in the 8-bit and 16-bit era, they had very few channels with which to fuck with. Mm -hmm. So they had to just squeeze every little bit they could out of it. Yep. And uh yeah, I I'm I'm just very thankful that that was actually the first thing that I like really latched onto musically cuz it like it it helped me be a better player and a better composer. So you composed some songs on your own, but pretty much immediately started doing covers. Started doing covers. <laughs> yeah. And uh I mean more power to you. I mean especially with video game covers, uh a lot of these uh, composers were uh, 80s Japanese metal guys as well. Yeah. And uh, wound up uh, lending a lot of musical skill. It's not just, you know, like four note melodies most of the time. It's mm -hmm. actually some stuff going on. So that leapfrogs your skill. Um, what's it like these days working with other musicians? How much has it changed from the uh, the self-composing dynamic or the cover dynamic to the bands that you're known for these days, like Hayes Mage? Um, you know, I think that maybe one of my best skills as a musician has nothing to do with me being a musician. It's that I can uh, collaborate with people effectively and try to build an environment where there's a lot of camaraderie mm -hmm. and a lot of open dialogue. Like, my policy when it comes to song building is let's just try it once. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Like, if somebody's like, well, I think we should do a little counter melody here, or we should have a hard pause here, or we should do a halftime breakdown here, and somebody else is like, nah, I think that's going to sound like shit. I'm like, pause. Mm -hmm. Let's try it. And if it sucks, if we all agree communally that it sucks, then we just won't do it. But if we all think it sounds cool, or we get that little, we get that little spark when we do it, and it sounds fucking badass, then we'll hold on to it, and we'll continue moving forward. Um, I, I try not to be like, 
too overly focused on being like goal oriented, but I really do like rehearsals where you kind of bullshit around for 20 minutes mm-hmm. and then you fucking go. Like we have a stated objective. We meet the objective. We're trying to finish this song today. We're trying to work on this song today, whatever it is. Like we go after it, but just like making jokes, you know, busting, busting each other's balls, having fun, trying to make it light, trying to make it, you know, uh, just an environment where people feel comfortable. Yeah, oh, yeah, and yeah, I like I I think that I bring something to the table like as a as a player as a as a writer, uh, but more than anything else, like my ability to collaborate with people, I think is probably my greatest strength as a musician because I can like kind of help people congeal. Right. Do you find yourself doing a lot of covers these days in the bands? No, and here's why. <clears throat> so first of all, I was in the entertainment system for like. 12 or 15 years, I can't even remember. And that was all <clears throat> that was all covers, but we were doing like a me- uh, explicitly metal take, right? So we were writing original parts for like transitions. We were doing tempo changes. We were doing all kinds of weird shit. For whatever reason, I ended up being the drummer for another video game cover band called Rare Candy that was completely synth-driven. Instead of guitars, it was two synths, bass, one guitar, and drums. Okay. And we we saw some, uh, some moderate success, but that, again, that was another cover band. I was also in a Stax and Motown wedding band for like eight years called the Motorettes, where I played drums. So at this stage in my musical life, I am fucking done with covering shit. Like, <laughs> the, the, guy, the guys in Polyhedral actually were like, um, we already know how to play. Um, God, there's this Queen song that's like, it, it it's a punk song, but it, it's from Queen, and it's before punk was a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Sheer Heart Attack. You ever listen to Sheer Heart Attack? Yes, yeah. Fucking awesome song. So we we learned that as a cover a couple of years ago for a Bros event. It was a it was a Bros member event that was like private for for dues paying members or something. And uh, my bassist Tyler was like, "We should play Sheer Heart Attack in this band Polyhedral," and I was like, "No." It's a great song, and I love playing it. I love performing, but like, I'm not fucking with covers anymore. Like, I'm just done with it. Uh, he was like, "Well, we just need to pad the set. You know, we would have like a solid 20 minutes. We threw a couple covers, and I was like, I'm not interested in learning fucking covers, man. I don't want to do any more covers. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, that's just <laughs> so the collaborative spirit is in full force. The creative spirit is in full force. All the way. We're not going back to trying to work on other people's stuff. Yeah, no, but you know, like, uh, I I'm also very aware, like, especially with Cowbunga Pizza Time, like. I think that like if you operate in the sphere of a punk band, like mm-hmm. you you just cannot earnestly avoid musical tropes from other things. Yeah. Like you're writing a song, you're just like, oh well, this just sounds like Turbo Negro. Fine. Turbo Negro's fucking awesome. Like <laughs> it's part of the language. The show yeah, language. it's not a problem. Like that stuff's okay. Um so a lot of people have big goals, small goals. What's your most extravagant or lofty musical goal uh, that is yet to be attained? All right. Well, I'm 38, about to turn 39 in January. I would really love the to tour overseas for even like a week or two. I think Cowbunk and Pizza Time could make it in Japan and fucking turn some heads for real. Um, Hayes Mage was loosely offered a partnering touring slot with uh, a band that we're friends with called Black Lung. Um, and, you know, like when you international tour for anybody listening who's not familiar, like you basically pay for everything and then you make the money back in merch and, and, and door money. Um, but I have a kid, I like a six-year-old. <laughs> right. So, you know, that, that stuff has become tricky. But now that she's a little older, like 
there might be a little flexibility there. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know if any of my bands really have the notoriety to just like strike out and be like, hey, we're going to do 10 dates in fucking Japan. Right. But that would really be like, if I could do that, if I could like tour Europe or tour Japan, just go overseas and play some dates, I would basically be like cool to just like not give a fuck after that. Is Japan the goal? <sighs> not, I mean, it's not realistic. I mean, it, it is and it isn't. Like our bassist, Kurt, visits Japan like yearly and he understands what the tour circuit's like. He knows like the logistics and shit that goes into that. Um, if we really wanted to make it happen, if we were like laser focused on making it happen, I think we probably could. Um, but I, I'm not really like pushing any of my dudes to be like, we need to go to fucking Belgium. (laughs) Like, you know, I I would love to do it. If the opportunity presented itself, I would try to go for it, but it's not like a objective really. Fair enough. Um, what about short term or immediate goals? Is there something that you're working on right now that, uh, you're looking to turn the corner on? Yeah. I mean, uh, polyhedral is, um, I mean, that, that's a working title, by the way. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's a working t- name of that band. So uh, there's this guy named uh, Steven Rickman. He's a really he's a really uh, close. He's a good friend, and uh, he is an insanely sick fucking drummer. Just chops for days, double bass, crazy fills. His sensibility is wild as fuck. And, like, he had moved back and forth. He was in an entertainment system for a little while. He had guested on some shit with bros uh, here and there throughout the years. And he finally, like, moved back to Maryland in earnest. And, like, his thing was, like, I want to play music with you guys. So it's me, uh, my my main dude, um, Jonathan Smeltzer, and uh, Tyler Merchant. And both of these guys were, like, former Rare Candy members, former entertainment system dudes. Okay. They, they played shit with me and bros. Every time I've done music for bros, they've been there. So, like, the three of us plus Steve have, like, this hard-to-define kismet that is fucking amazing like our songwriting as a group is like there's there's supernatural elements at play mm-hmm. <laughs> in my in my humble opinion so for us like uh it's prog it's deathcore it's uh, we're we are trying to confuse the listener we are trying to make music people be like what the fuck like that's what we're shooting for and like i'm really excited to see what people think about this project because like especially after just doing covers for so long with all of these dudes or doing stuff that is expressly pointed at, like we're doing a rock opera about the moon crashing into earth, or we're doing a rock opera about, you know, giant monsters and, uh, you know, a a chosen one rising up and getting the secret sword to smite the monster. Like, right. That's not what this is. This is just like, we are writing fucking metal that sounds cool to us. Yeah. And that like getting a 30 minute set and putting a record out, And, like, in the short term, just to address that more directly, like, I just want to keep on putting out material. I just want to remain Mm -hmm. relevant and proactive about making stuff musically. Right on. Um, Speaking of goals, has there been a moment in your musicianship where you felt you really reached a personal milestone? I mean, opening for Andrew WK felt pretty serious. I was drunk as fuck. I really regret being (laughs) as drunk as I was when we did that shit. Um, I got to meet him after the show, and I know that I was just, like, a sloppy mess. Uh, that That was great. Um, if you're not familiar with MAGFest, the, it's called the Music and Gaming Festival. It's, uh, 20,000 people come to this convention every year. It's, it's in, uh, it's in some pocket of Maryland near DC. I can't remember, uh, what it's called. National Harbor at this hotel called the Gaylord, but 20,000 people come out and, um, Calabunga Pizza Time got the main stage on Thursday, the opening slot, which was like 6 PM. Mm-hmm. And we were like, well, you know, this is cool. Like we got free passes to the con, 
we're going to play the main stage, which has like insane production, all these fucking crazy robot lights and shit, a big screen behind us and everything. But we were like, it's Thursday at 6 p.m., so. Yeah, who's going to be here? Whatever, maybe. right? 3,000 people fucking showed up. Wow. Yeah. Um, it was or something like that. I don't know the exact number, but we I remember we walked out and we were like, whoa, like this is some serious shit. Yeah, that's a pretty, that's surprising for a Thursday. Yeah, especially. Yeah, right. Um, so, you know, like anytime we get to play MacFest, and I've done it a couple times now, uh, that's always like a nice little feather in the cap. Um, but, you know, I'm always... Anytime P. Landers E, if you ever heard of them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, anytime they come to Baltimore, like, we usually get tapped on the shoulder to open. If it's, you know, when I had the video game cover band, it was the it was the entertainment system or Rare Candy. Now that I have Cowabunga Pizza Time, you know, we wear outfits. We have a motif and a, and a fucking um, gimmick and shit. So, like, right. you know, uh, MC Chris, when he comes through, okay, uh, we get to open for him. Or MC Lars came through and we open. You know, like, it's it's nice to sort of be, like, an asset. Yeah, in a greater sort of uh, cultural yeah. scene sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, um, let's talk about your music, your art. Um, are there any subjects that you just won't touch? Lines that you won't cross, be it for uh, genres that you don't want to play, uh, taboos, controversies, uh, politics, anything like that? Is there, are there places where you just won't go with what you create? Mm, if you listen to my short-lived band Tunnel Bike, you will learn that the answer to that is probably no. Uh, because, I mean, obviously, like, I'm not a racist or a sexist person. I would never make anything that's about, like, white power or fucking degrading anybody. Mm -hmm. Except for Christians, because that's exactly what Tunnel Bike did. Um, we, uh, we had a band called Tunnel Bike. There was a show... <laughs> on the Trinity Broadcasting Network that came on every Sunday at 1, 1 p.m. that me and my good friend Matt P.A. and a number of other people would watch as, like, a fucking laugh. Like, we would get really stoned and watch this show called Bible Man. And it's okay. it a superhero that um, that summons the power of God to, like, stop really small problems, like a kid who's not confident in his jump shot. Like he's a he's literally a fucking superhero who is like summoning God's power and like forming armor with his faith, right? But then the problems he's solving are like I'm I'm worried that my mom will find out I lied. Like, <laughs> um, so we watched the show and we got this idea that like we should do a band that like uh, spoke to our fandom of this stupid program and it ended up being this band called Tunnel Bike where we basically posed as a Christian punk rock group. But about two or three songs in, it became really evident that we were actually satire and poking fun at the Christian faith and, like, pointing out its bigotry and its hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. um, we recorded an album, <laughs> and uh, we had more than one uncomfortable conversation after a set. You know, we, we played some house shows and sidebar and shit, and... There are some people out there who really like that group, and I'm proud of the material we did. It was a straight punk rock group, but we did stuff about, like, we have a song called Holiest of Holies where it's about how, like, you know, it, when you love your woman, you preserve her purity by fucking her in the ass instead of in the vagina. Because <laughs> right. that's how you get around yeah, uh, yeah. keeping her pure. I guess these days it's soaking and uh, jump humping or whatever. Yeah, you know, doing. you cut the hole in the sheet or, you know, whatever else. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I mean, that was the thing. Like when we, when we shut that band down, like it didn't actually, we didn't decide it was over. It just kind of like fizzled out. At least we didn't do it anymore. Um, and we had this joke that was like, well, 
you know, Donald Trump is talking about running for president. If he gets elected, we'll bring back tunnel bike. And when that actually happened, it was just such a depressing thing that it didn't seem funny anymore. Like, right. Uh, and we, and we didn't reform that band. So I don't know. I mean, like, yeah, as far as limits, like, I don't know, it, it kind of depends on the intent. It was fun while we did it, but like, uh, it was definitely like kind of risky, risque. <laughs> right. So you've been there. You've, you've, you've pushed the envelope a little bit in terms of, uh, yeah. For anybody listening, like go look up tunnel bike on Bandcamp. You'll see what I'm talking about. It's, you know, I mean, we talk, we have a song called burn the Quran. Like for real, we were playing a part. It was a thing. Um, and you know, we were trying to push the envelope a little bit, but those, those days are behind me now. <laughs> right on. Um, as a musician, what is your relationship with the term success when it comes to music and have fun? Do, do you feel successful with what you've done? I feel lucky that I get to do it and that's about it. And I mean, like if you want to talk about money, um, not really. I mean, it's not, it's never really been about the money. I think that success for any musician should be about the family that you form when you decide to make music with the people that you make it with. Mm -hmm. Um, I just last night I played some board games at no land beyond with a guy named Patrick Stasso, who's a horn player and him and I are friends and we have a connection to this day because we played in some rock operas together. Mm-hmm. There's a guy named John Burkholz who's in a number of notable bands in Baltimore, like uh, Super City, and he has a, a personal project called, um, oh, shit, uh, Adjective Animal uh, that he does, right? He, he's a very accomplished musician, like awesome fucking player. And we have an immediate, I saw him at a wedding for our mutual friend, Zach, who's a cellist. Mm-hmm. And um, we share a connection because we played one rock opera together. You know, I think that that is what, should be the aim like i would love for us to be successful and i think that any of the bands that i'm in could probably do it if we really tried hard to do it um but for success it i mean what does it mean i mean i don't mean that it has to mean money it doesn't mean i don't think it is (laughs) it's never it's always nice when you walk out of a gig and you're like hey we made 250 bucks off the door and 300 dollars on merch right that's fucking awesome right that money has never landed directly in my pocket you know, it always goes back into the band. Like, we're always trying to make more cool merch or, uh, you know, maybe get a cool custom bass drum head or something. You yeah. know, get a banner made. You know, it's always just trying to, like, up the experience. So, yeah, I would say for success, it's forming, like, long-lasting and meaningful relationships with your bandmates and also providing a memorable experience for the people who see your shit. Awesome. And I imagine you feel that you provide a memorable experience i mean i've had people tell me that they cry at shows that i mean cowabunga pulls the heartstrings a little bit we're very like humanist uh like pro brotherhood togetherness like lift yourself up we're sort of borrowing a, a chapter or a page from andrew wk or other bands of that ilk where it's very like uplifting music that's very raucous and big sounding and like you are a human and i'm a human we should love each other kind of stuff right right um what's the most difficult part about making music or being a musician just making time and you know having it still be 
a priority that doesn't feel like work. It's a priority that shouldn't feel like a priority. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I want to meet up with the boys or the girls. I got some, there's some ladies in some of my bands. Mm -hmm. And, like, it. when I first started playing music, it was kind of about getting fucked up. Like, drink some beer, take a couple shots, like, smoke some weed, fucking rock out, you know, spend six hours at the practice space. Like, that's your whole day, you know? Mm-hmm. And that stuff is, that was fun. And sometimes that happens. But now it's really, like, we meet on Mondays and we practice from 7.30 to 10. At 10, we have a hard out. Like, we have goals where you're trying to get shit done. And it's not really a job because none of us are getting fucking paid. Um, but, <laughs> you know, like, have fun but still kind of treat it like a job, mm-hmm. you know? I, I think that's what's hard is is understanding that, like, it's it feels like more than a hobby even though it is kind of just a hobby. Yeah, there's, like, a balance to it. Yeah. Um. Do you believe that songs or music has monetary value? Um, yes. But I struggle with the concept of money because I understand that it is how our world works. Mm-hmm. But I also acknowledge that it is a construct and that it's not real. <laughs> um, and then I think about the metaphysical value of music that hits you in the brain like a lightning bolt sometimes and makes your brain drip with endorphins and makes you feel like you're out of breath and makes you feel like you're about to cry and songs that you just want to listen to over and over and over. There's something that is like money shouldn't really be a thing that informs what we try to, what I try to do. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's never feel I've always been thankful for any sort of monetary success but do you think that being a musician is a viable job anymore? Mm, yeah, but you have to really like speaking from my perspective as an illustrator, like I I deal in art all the time. Like it's all that I do, but I'm coming from a, a very specific point of privilege because my partner makes a salary that makes it so I don't need to worry about keeping a roof over our head. Like, our lights aren't going to turn off because I didn't do enough illustration this month. Mm -hmm. You know? Um, I am afforded a ton of freedom that a lot of people don't have. And for artists that don't have that privilege, um, they need to come up with a formulaic business plan, a plan of attack. And especially now where, you know, uh, digital media, social media, marketing, all of this stuff is just a YouTube video away. Mm -hmm. You don't have to, there isn't, there's no longer gatekeepers for the music industry now. Like if you want to really do something and make your mark, like if you just grind hard as fuck and do it and just continue to have consistent output and make stuff that's decent, you'll find an audience. I mean, you can get there. And if you want to have it be your career and you want to make money off of it, you want to be the next fucking Lady Gaga or Justin Bieber or whoever the hell else, uh, you know, Doja Cat. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) I, I mean, Doja Cat to me is like a perfect example of that. Like, she was just an individual who just decided she wanted to go after it. And I remember seeing her on fucking YouTube or something like three years ago, and and nobody had ever heard of her. Mm -hmm. She was doing a song about being a cow that I thought was amazing. (laughs) And now, like, she's, you know, top 10 Billboard hits on every social media thing with little song snippets and stuff. I mean, you can get there. It's like, it's good. The accessibility is present. But I don't know if intention, like, fucks with the quality of music if, like, you're like, I want to be a successful artist. 
like monetarily or I want to make music that matters to me. Like those things aren't mutually exclusive. Like you can do both, but I think it just takes a shit ton of work. Right. Um, so when it comes to you paying the bills, or I mean, you said your wife pays the bills, but your main job outside of music is the illustration and artistry. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, uh, all under Ghostbat. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what is that, uh, like for your job in, uh, how does it balance with doing the music stuff? Um, well, you know. I've worked out a deal with some of my bands where it's like, hey, we got a gig playing at the Metro Gallery on a Saturday with XYZ. Like, can you make a cool poster? I'm like, absolutely. But I want 150 bucks off the door afterwards. Like, I can't just block off two days of my week to do a show poster for my bands because we need a fucking poster. Like, that time is time that I could and should be spending on commission work. Right. So I've worked out some stuff with my bands where they, like, understand that, like, if I'm going to do album art for like a four panel digipack, you know, duplication job, mm-hmm. like I need to be compensated something. It's not my normal rate. It's <laughs> greatly reduced. Right. It's friendly. Um, but it's, it's like kind of tricky. I remember, you know, there's, there's all of this, uh, all of this shit about like, you know, figure out what you love and then like do it every day. And then every day is a fun day. <laughs> that's yes. fucking bullshit. It that's not the way it is. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's all people are are tripping over themselves to hand you money at least. No, I mean even then like it's, you know, it took me like 3 years to find a balance where like you don't feel guilty all the fucking time. Mm-hmm. Like anytime I sit down to play a video game or something, I'm like I could be working, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um and like just trying to find like a life balance and I, I try not to. I, I don't want to. I don't want to make it sound like you know I'm in some rough position. Like I'm. I I value where I am. Like as a creator. Um. I'm like again. Like I'm just. I'm. I have a lot of privilege and things that allow me to do. I get to work on stuff that I care about every day, mm-hmm. which is amazing. Uh, but at the same time, I still work. I still work. You know, six years ago when I I wasn't a freelance illustrator and I was working at a fucking brewery, uh, you know, moving kegs around and shit. Uh, all I was thinking about was like how awesome it would be to be my own boss and be a freelancer. And now I'm a freelancer and it's like, it's a struggle to eschew some time and to really stay focused, like get your mind right, fucking sit down and get the work done. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Fun stuff. Uh, what is the favorite, <laughs> sorry. What is your favorite piece of gear that you've ever owned? I mean, or used. Ooh. Um, favorite piece of gear I ever owned or used. Well, I just got a custom guitar made. Uh, it's running me just south of a grand, and it's a guitar that's shaped like a fucking sigh. You know? Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So in Calabunga Pizza Time, for anybody who's not familiar, like we are humans who have no awareness of any mutated turtles that may or may not exist in the zeitgeist of pop culture. Uh, we wear like acid washed uh, neon green denim vests and jeans and high top sneakers. And each of us has a respective color. And I am the cool but rude red human in the uh, <laughs> band. And my name is Ralph. Ah, okay. And my weapon uh, as a ninja ass kicker is the three pronged sigh. And my guitar is now shaped like a sigh. Nice. <laughs> Um, however, 
I will also talk about tracking. Um, I was I, I was in a band for about two years called The Survivors of Camp Crystal Lake, and we did full costumes as different slasher film uh, icons. So I was Leatherface, and we wrote original songs about slasher films, right. about horror films. And um, I remember when we were tracking uh the song about the texas chainsaw massacre we brought a chainsaw in and live tracked it which was cool and then we put it through some filters and stuff uh but i wasn't like super attached to my distortion for that group because i've always played out of a line six uh hybrid uh it's like a bogner valve um hybrid amp that you know has all of its effects and, and amp modelers already like dialed into the to the head yeah uh so when we went in i was like okay Jason George was the name of the the engineer who was there. And I was like, I want you to bring out the most like gnarly fucking scooped, just bitey thing you can do for us to <laughs> record this. And he brought out this PV and um I think he, he might have he might have rooted it through a Mesa Boogie also. Like he did some weird shit and we got like a very like cr- like crunchy, sharp uh-huh. distortion. I always like doing that, like going into the studio and being like, no, nah, I'm just gonna ditch all of my normal gear. And uh, give me like your heaviest thing that you can you can do. Right on. How much gear is too much? Where do you draw the line? I played the same guitar like the whole time. Do you get gear acquisition syndrome where you feel you gotta buy new stuff? Nope. Uh, I got I have a Gibson SG Gothic MK2. No, it's not an MK2, but it's got some it's got some EMG pickups. It's all black. Uh, and I've been playing that since I got it. Like that's, I own that. My first guitar was a Strat Squire that's sitting in a case in my closet. And then for survivors, because we had like live blood, we had like fake blood in the set. Uh, we had these severed heads that were on pikes that would spit blood at the audience. Oh, wow. Um, I was getting blood all over my stuff and I was like, I can't, can't do that anymore. So I bought this, uh, BC rich warlock. That I still have that has it's got a crack in the neck. It's kind of fucked up. I need to get it fixed. But those are the three. <laughs> those are the three. I just got the side guitar made. I've been playing music for almost twenty years. I own the Gibson, the Fender, and the Warlock, and that's it. And then I, I got my drum set, which is a, um, it's the Travis Barker signature set that he put out like ten years ago. Wow, right on. All right. Do you have any hobbies or passion projects outside of music that you uh, that fight for your music time? Yeah. Um, like five years ago, I decided that I wanted to be a board game publisher. So it's work, but when you start to design board games as a part of your job, you kind of need to play a shit ton of board games. Right. I've been doing that. We have a regular game night every Friday. Um, and uh, yeah. I've been designing and playing board games. It, again, it's like one of those things that like it's a job that kind of feels like a hobby at the same time. Uh, so yeah, that like I play Magic the Gathering quite a bit. Uh, enjoy that. I don't do any online gaming because that was making me late to shit. So it's a lot of really casual, just like kitchen table type shit. Okay. Um, but yeah, you know, I spent like two or three hours last Sunday making a zombie deck. That I thought was pretty cool. Nice. Kind of played like shit, though, when I got it to the table. <laughs> that happens. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So, lastly, could you tell us about your most recent project or projects and where people could find them on the internet? Yeah. 
So for my illustration stuff, I'm on Instagram uh, at ghost underscore bat underscore. Um, also, you can see some of my work at uh, ghostbatart.com, uh, at terriblegames.info or tokenterrors.com. You can find our board game stuff, and that doesn't include all of the things we're working on, but mostly our flagship product, Token Terrors, which is a one versus one semi-abstract battle game where you draft an army of 10 monsters and put them into a bag, shake them up, uh, put them out onto a 7 by 7 grid and battle to the death. Um, musically, Cowbunga Pizza Time is sort of still coming off of some just like weirdness with the pandemic. Uh, just trying to like get reacquainted with meeting on a regular basis. Hayes Mage has been working on new material, but our guitarist Nick just had a baby. Congratulations. But he's been out of the mix for a minute, so mm-hmm. kind of slowed us down a little bit, but we're still working on stuff. And Polyhedral is meeting like bi-weekly. Um... And trying to get like a 30 minute set together so we can try to maybe record a demo and look for a singer. We are looking for a vocalist because like in the same vein as like I don't want to do covers anymore. We also like collectively are just like we should not be an instrumental band again because uh, just been a lot of that. Um, and I think for stuff coming up, if you want to like help support my shit, uh, keep your eyes peeled for a board game we're putting out next year called Black Mold going to kind of be like our big we're hoping it'll make a a bit of a splash in the hobby in the space in the you know for the board gaming world um it's a monochromatic sort of black metal aesthetic uh horror survival game where your turn lasts as long as you can hold your breath (laughs) nice um it's a yeah the the premise of the game is that you're a prisoner who's trying to escape a subterranean compound where all of the walls and the stairs and everything is completely consumed by a poisonous fungal growth that causes you to hallucinate so sounds rad yeah when you breathe your attributes slowly degrade and the game is actually set up visually to confuse players and make them feel like they don't know what the fuck is going on. Um, so yeah, that's been fun. <laughs> Sounds awesome. Thanks man. Well, I uh, look forward to trying out black mold and uh, token terrors uh, as soon as I see it in a store. Um, as well as, uh, I think you have an RPG project as well coming out. Oh, shit. Thank you for reminding me. Yeah, um, we did a project called Repugnant, which is the world's most disgusting TTRPG. And for people who are uh, uninitiated, uh, that stands for a tabletop role-playing game. Um, We're actually in the final stages of getting the layout finished up, and I'm trying to get printed copies for... uh, By the time this airs, it'll already have happened, but I'm going to PAX Unplugged in Philly for December 10th to the 12th. It's a big board gaming convention. Uh, so I'm going to try and have printed copies at that. And yeah, I've just, actually the last couple of weeks has been me just doing cleanup on layout and getting illustration and stuff to sort of fill in the blanks for what's shaping up to be like a 60 page um, printed book. That's a self-contained world about it's a it's a role playing game that's set in a in a setting. The setting is a, a world where there's like four miles of garbage covering the entire planet. So everybody is disgusting. Everything is gross. Farts fucking popping zits burping dandruff earth pretty much (laughs) earth but (laughs) like our earth is three miles down oh okay like it used to be earth and then all of the bullshit of humanity destroyed it and a good in the story this is a bit of a spoiler uh um a lot of humanity actually like left the planet 
and went to like a like a generational spacecraft to like sort of wait things out and see if like the earth would repair itself and instead of repairing itself all of the creatures who were left behind evolved into these zit covered burping farting smelly <laughs> garbage people nice <laughs> well it sounds great i can't wait to check out the art i mean the toxic avenger melty people yeah. aesthetic it yep. looks really cool to Thanks. me and um I definitely can't wait to hear the new music either. So uh, whatever form polyhedral decide, polyhedron, polyhedral, whatever, polyhedral, yeah. whatever uh, name uh, eventually comes out of it, since that is a uh, work in we progress. Might, we, we might stick with that one. I think it's kind of cool. What do you think? It's pretty cool. For like a prog project, like a deathcore prog thing? Sure. I think it, I think it, uh, it kind of tells you what it's going for in the sure. name itself. Okay. I, initially, well, we had a bunch of different ideas, like... I wanted to call it um, Ort. You know what Ort is? Uh, this might uh, out me as a big nerd, but it's a rune in Diablo 2. <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, that's not the reference, but I like that that exists. Um, there's, this, there's this theoretical cloud of space debris that was formed at the, at oh, the Big yeah. Bang. Oh, yeah, this is O-O-R-T, right? Yeah, ah, yeah, called okay. the, the Ort Cloud. Um, and I was like, that's a fucking cool name. And of course, there's a bunch of other bands that already have that name. Um, and then I was thinking we could be called D&D uh, and D&D. &D &D, <laughs> nice. uh, because we, I write a lot of stuff in Drop D, and a lot of us play Dungeons & Dragons, but our drummer Steve doesn't, so he was like, I don't like that. And then sort of a compromise was polyhedral, because when you get the dice set for RPGs is a polyhedral dice set. Yeah. But polyhedral, the term, means a multi-polygonal shape, which plays to like how we're sort of toying with uh being sort of mathy mm -hmm. and about like the numbers when it comes to how we compose stuff okay so we'll see if it sticks for right now it feels good yeah seems good <laughs> well john thank you very much for coming in and My talking pleasure, to me today uh definitely after listening go ahead and check out all of john's stuff we'll try to have some links for at least some of it wherever we're distributing this podcast so uh have a good day, and I hope to see you again and see the stuff. Uh, maybe we can uh, have another date where we crack open some boxes or something. Sounds good, man. All right, this concludes episode three of Thrash Life. If you enjoyed our conversation today, please consider supporting our show by liking, subscribing, reviewing, commenting, and telling your friends about our show. If you have any suggestions for us, feel free to reach out to us as well. Also, please let us know who you would like to hear us interview. Yeah, definitely. Um, Thrash Life is recorded in Baltimore, Maryland at Orion Studios. And it's been a production of Medusa Head Media. Thank you very much for listening. Have a good day. <laughs>